to embody openness this morning. Our God, as we come into this space, and as in the quiet we attempt a moment of honesty with ourselves and with you, we are fragile, more fragile than we want others people to know. We want to look tough and strong and capable. And yet you see our fragility, you see the ways that we've embodied that in our lives. You see all the covering, all the fake stuff that we put out there to the world, trying to be things that we're not, sometimes hurting others in our efforts to do so. You see it all and you love us deeply. You see through it to the ones that you created and the love that you have for us. And may we with humility find you this morning and hear your voice calling to us out of love. May we hold together the fact that we are more of a mess than we care to admit, but more loved in Christ than we ever imagined. The God who came and entered into the nitty-gritty, confusing chaos and mess of our lives and our world to bring lost children home. May we know we are your children as we listen this morning for your voice. Amen. So the question of the week last week was, what are you practicing? What are you practicing? And um, someone said that they're practicing Spanish from an app. Someone else said they're practicing their Fortnite skills. And someone else said that they're practicing patience. And they added, of course. What are you practicing? Um... It's, it's interesting. It wouldn't be interesting if someone you met someone and, and they said um, that they were a non-practicing chef. <laughs> or if you met someone and they said they're a non-practicing airline pilot or a non-practicing yoga enthusiast, you would just kind of turn your head and... Yeah, I'm not real sure what to say about that. How do I... And in yourself, what, what might be fun to be known as without doing the hard work of practicing? You know, what might you pick if you were going to be non-practicing blank? You know, I, I, I think that I might pick to be a non-practicing genius. <laughs> you know, no, none of the studying, none of the reading, none of the hard mental work, and yet to be known as a genius. Maybe a non, non-practicing professional basketball player. Um, be fun to say that and look at people's the reaction. Uh, well, what, what team? Well, oh, no team. I've never been on a team. I'm non-practicing. Um, of course, that all sounds really silly, but um, there, there seems to be at least a little bit of tolerance for this in at least one area of our lives in our world today. There's these um, surveys that happen, these polls that are taken that have to do with religion and faith. And, and on, these, um, you know, on these polls and surveys that are done, there's often this anomaly that happens where people will answer 
that they um, have an association or an affinity for, or, or they're following Jesus or the Christian faith. And yet, um, as the quite more detailed questions flesh it out, they'll, they'll check the boxes that say they're not really practicing um, or they're not involved or they're not, you know, doing those things that, that, you know, Christians or to be a Christian that you'd say, well, those are the ways that you engage. Those are the ways that you practice. That's kind of what it means to be a Christian. And, and it seems from this passage that it's this kind of spectator phenomenon that Jesus um, seems to be challenging or our story today seems to be challenging as he, um, a lot of times he's working with uh, his close 12 and then he's also working with big crowds. But in this particular passage, just a chapter ago, he has sent out his 12 on a very similar mission to go and, and heal and cast out demons and whatnot, this powerful stuff. And then now suddenly he's sending out 70. Um, and it's a little bit of unique situation because the other gospel writers, you know, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The other ones tell the story about the 12, but not this. They don't include the story about the 70 being sent out. It seems like Luke is, finds it important to tell this story of the 70, probably because there's a parallel to a story in the Old Testament when God calls uh, Moses to gather the 70 elders uh, of Israel and seems to be saying, or in that passage very specifically saying, I'm going to take the spirit and put it on them also so that all the load isn't on, isn't on you, Moses. And there's a little a little um, confusion over um, the different manuscripts and whether this passage originally said 70 or 72, and that doesn't really matter all that much because in the Old Testament story there was 70, but then there also were two of them that stayed behind in the village, and they actually ended up being filled with the Spirit and prophesying. So either way, 70 or 72, it matches up very nicely with the Old Testament story. So Luke seems to be kind of saying the same God of the Old Testament is... is uh, working here. Very colorful story. There's not a dull moment in this story. In fact, it's almost too much to process, but there's all this um, evocative, creative, um, uh, you know, very active language and stuff that's happening as Jesus, on the one hand, mentions wolves, and another moment he's mentioning scorpions, and the next moment he's talking about Satan and demons, and then there's healing the sick, and then he's also letting out these words of, um, really, of, of like condemnation condemnation over these different towns that have rejected and been very closed off to God. And even one of them is basically his hometown, Capernaum. So there's a lot here, and we'll get into a few takeaways from this, but I thought I'd just, as a sort of a caveat, just remind us that reading stories in the Bible can be really tricky. Um, and this one in particular is, it can be a little bit tricky if you're coming at the Bible with a sense that the Bible is a sort of an instruction manual. You know, I open it up and tell me what to do, and the first thing I read is I view it as an instruction to myself of what to do today. And this story gets into all kinds of problems if you view it that way. Um, it's not really an instruction manual. We have to remember that sometimes the Bible is just description. And we gain all kinds of things from the description, but it's not necessarily meant to be prescription that after this service that, you know, hey, maybe there's about 70 of us here, you know, including the kids next door, and maybe you should partner up and go out, and you'd be surprised to find out that maybe you don't find any demons, and they don't submit to you, and, um, and you say, what am I doing wrong, you know, and well, maybe 
maybe this wasn't meant as instructions for you today anyway. Um, and, and there's actually, Jesus hints at that reality. It's a, it's a good lesson in learning how to read the Bible because Jesus in verse 24 says, um, he says, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. There's a sense in which there's something happening that's huge, that's big, that has to do with Jesus being on earth in the way he was then. And that was a moment. It's not our moment. And it's not the moment of even the most important holy people before, thousands of years before. It's, it's just the moment that happened then. So we also are kind of like those looking at it going, wow, we would love to be there and see that. It's not our moment. But let's, let's listen to this, though, and see what this has to say for us all in our moment. And let me just kind of boil it down to three things. I feel like this could be a sermon series that goes 12 weeks long, but we'll um, try to just do some of the, catch some of the things happening here. First of all, Jesus has, he has no qualms using imperfect people. That should be a relief to you. Jesus has no qualms in, in using imperfect people. You know, if you walk out on this part of the sermon, it means that you think that you're perfect and, um, and you don't need to hear this part. But it's really interesting because in the previous chapter, the previous chapter, and this is what's fun about doing a series in Luke, is that I feel a little bit of permission to let you in on some of the other things happening before and after this text. Um, uh, this morning we dealt with the part right after this text. Had an amazing discussion that Victoria led us on, on the parable of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan. But what happens before this passage is amazing as well, because you basically have this whole section on adventures by the disciples, adventures in missing the point. And in bringing, you know, truth to that name that some people have called them the disciples. Because, because it, let, me, let me just allude to some of these things. And, and, you know, some of them are very understandable. Like when Jesus has 5,000 people, he has 5,000 people following him around, and the disciples come up and they see it as a problem that Jesus send them off to go buy food because... They're, they're hungry. It's time to wrap things up here with the teaching and let's be practical. But Jesus, they have just returned, Luke tells us, these 12 uh, disciples, they have just returned from themselves going around and being amazed of the power, the power that they've been given by Jesus. And, and there's, there's amazing, powerful things happening just by their words and by their speaking. Jesus seems a little disappointed that they're not, ready to apply that same sense of power to the, the, this simple need of having to feed these 5,000 people. I mean, you and I look at it and go, well, of course they would think they need to be sent to go find food. Like, like who suddenly just feeds 5,000 people out of their hat, you know? So, you know, you can kind of, you know, commiserate with them. Jesus doesn't rebuke them or anything, but he definitely says, hey, you give them something to eat and kind of stands back to see their reply. So, so, so what's happening in the chapter before this is the disciples seem very unfamiliar with and uncomfortable with and almost like novices at the idea of the kind of power that Jesus has. They've been let in on it, but they're very uh, jumpy and kind of unsure of how, how it all works. And the stories continue. There's the transfiguration story that happens in chapter 9 where... Um, uh, Peter and James and John are on a mountain with Jesus and a cloud comes and Moses and Eli Elijah are there and, and a voice from heaven comes. I mean, it's power. It's this, 
It's this ancient kind of spiritual power that they know of from the scriptures. And, and Peter says, uh, this is, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three shelters, Jesus. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then the narrator has to tell us this amazing line, one of my favorite parts in the Bible where it says, just very simply, and it's just hilarious, it says, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> just like, it's basically just making fun of Peter um, in the Bible. He did not know what he was saying. I love that. And it goes on. They, they don't seem to know what to do with power. There's a story after that of a demon-possessed boy being brought to Jesus. And the father of the boy says to Jesus, I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't do anything, basically. I brought him to your disciples to drive out, but they could not. And Jesus is a little exasperated and, and says afterwards, uh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? And then he, and then he drives the demon out of the boy. And then it, and you think this is a lot already about their, their situation, but it, it gets even better. Um, they come to this, um, let's see, I want to make sure I do this in, in the right order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they say, uh, out of the blue, John says to Jesus, he says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he is not one of us. You know, you sense them like, is that right? Uh, you know, the power, and is, was that the right move? And Jesus says, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. And then the very next thing that happens is as they approach, uh, it says, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Very important uh, verse in the Gospel of Luke right there. It's a turning point. And then it says this, and he sent messengers on ahead, and they went to a Samaritan village to get things ready for him, but the people there did not welcome him because he was, he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, you know, they're thinking, okay, power, I want to get it right here. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? You know, it, just, it really is kind of, you can just kind of laugh at these, just these adventures and trying to, you know, how do we, we got power, right? So what do we do here? And Jesus turned and rebuked them. Um, so, you know, they, and they just went to another village. So you just get this sense like, you know, you, it, it's, just, it's just this amazing array of these guys, you know, if you're Jesus, you're thinking at this moment probably, um, boy, I, I don't know if I can trust these guys with anything. Um, what am I going to do? And then that's exactly when Jesus um, sends out 70 others. Yeah, I mean, you might say, I don't know how to read that. You might say, well, Jesus is like, okay, the 12, <laughs> let's, let's try this other 70 over here, <laughs> you know. But, so I don't know exactly if that's what's going on, but, but it does seem like an interesting time for Jesus to send out 70 more fresh recruits with, that he has given this authority and this power. And it just seems to me that Jesus is fine working with very imperfect unqualified people. He even says to them in the beginning, as he's giving them their charge, the 70, he says in verse 3, um, go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And then he says at the end, he refers to them as little children. And so you have to just know that there's a comfort level with Jesus in working with and through ordinary, untrained people. And apparently, Jesus is not concerned about achievement. He's not wrapped up in your credentials and your qualifications. 
It seems to be if you can be okay admitting your flaws and even your short-sightedness, even your, your imperfect vision, that God can then work his vision out through you. It's just why I was ex- excited to include in the worship guide this quote from an old uh, 20th century preacher, Clovis Chappelle, who says, if anything there is to be done in our day towards the saving of our humanity, if anything is to be done towards building a better home life, a stronger and more spiritual church life, a more just and social order, we are the ones that are going to have to do it. He is the vine, we are the branches. The vine has no way of bearing fruit except through the branches. That simply means God has no way of bringing in his kingdom unless through you and me. So Jesus has no qualms for using imperfect people, but he also, as he sends them out, it's a pretty terrifying pep talk that he gives them where he's, um, he seems to be wanting to, I mean, if you kind of look at the Bible when you're a preacher as, as literature and really get into the literature side of it and say, what is the writer really trying to get across here? What is the point that is really standing out? And Jesus seems over and over in this to be talking about welcome versus rejection. That seems to be a big theme in this passage. So he seems to be wanting to normalize the reality of rejection and just you know, make us very clear then and now that that's a part of the world, that's a part of the spiritual realm, that's a part of following God, following Jesus. So there's this sending pep talk or intro. Can you imagine hearing these words as as you're maybe getting sent out to do something? I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. There's going to be wolves out there attacking you. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) Um, And and then there's going to be entire towns that reject you. You know, can you imagine being re- rejected and scorned by an entire town of people? It's, it just really seems terrifying, especially for someone like me. I hate conflict. You know, this sounds awful to me. And yet there's lessons in this, aren't there, as we look at it. There's lessons about acceptance and rejection. And about, I think, spiritually speaking, a journey with God relates very closely to your issues of acceptance and rejection. And that if you, that you, are, you are encouraged by Jesus, you are, you are told by God not to be wrapped up either in rejection or in acceptance. You can be either overly inflated by the acceptance that the world offers you and that you're pursuing, or you can be unnecessarily deflated by the potential for rejection or the assumed rejection or the very obvious and outright rejection that you face in the world around you. And the exception in rejection has nothing to do with God's work in your life. In fact, if, if you're a Christian, one of the things that settles in your heart, one of the things that kind of switches, a penny that drops is on the, the grand scale of the acceptance that has clicked between you and God, the acceptance that has been laid out for you by God, the unconditional acceptance. So that all those churning and broiling issues we have of acceptance and rejection just, just settle down if we 
if we live our lives looking at the acceptance that's been laid out and offered to us by our own maker. That's the power of the gospel in your life. If you, if you realize what Jesus, what, what's being accomplished as Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem to move towards the cross and then the empty tomb and to go through all of that suffering and pain so that we can all be called children of God, that very accepting term. If you realize that, that that's been done for you, that Jesus has gone in and done that for you, that you have the acceptance of the universe, doesn't that make all those little conflicts of acceptance and rejection, doesn't it just settle those down? Doesn't it make them look puny and minuscule? So that's one of the things that Jesus drills down in this rejection acceptance um, issue. That's one of the ways it applies. One of the other interesting things to note, very specifically, is that Jesus doesn't entrust them as they, as they face rejection, he doesn't entrust them with words of condemnation. It's almost like th- that's not going to be their responsibility to deliver words of judgment and condemnation. In fact, it's almost like he doesn't trust them to be able to handle that kind of business, and so he gives them the exact words to say. <laughs> it's like, repeat after me, you'll be rejected, but here's what you say. <laughs> he gives them the exact words, and it's this... Um, this kind of ancient cultural thing of, of shaking the dust off of your, shoe, of your feet. Even, this is what you say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. You know, it's like, repeat after me, even the dust of your, you know. That, and I really find that interesting because in the same passage, Jesus himself is willing to offer up some words, some pretty um, chilling and um, unsettling words of, of woe to these towns that have rejected. But he doesn't entrust that to the people he's sending out. And I think that's just always good to remember in a world where there's often so much, there's often so much that is done in terms of condemnation around your beliefs and around those who don't believe as you. There's, there's such a willingness, there's such an impulse, and I think Jesus even knows this, of the 70 as he sends them out. He knows how strong our impulse is to say, once we've found something that feels like truth or that seems right or that we've been told is correct, to then begin pointing the fingers with pretty harsh words for those who aren't welcoming of those beliefs and aren't receiving them. I think this is something even for us today Um, I mean, I don't know if you want to repeat those exact words to people about the dust off your feet. I think that's culturally conditioned to the time it was written, but I think it's good to just take away that, yeah, I I don't know that that's my place to look around and try to declare the final judgment over people. And even the final words are still gracious words that he gives them. Tell them the kingdom of God is near. You know, that's, that's the main thing that they were supposed to preach. Tell people that the kingdom of God, heal the sick and say the kingdom of God is near. And, and even when you're rejected, just remind them the kingdom of God is near. You know, Jesus was going to be coming through these towns. And Jesus wants to give these towns every last chance of paying attention and being drawn in as children of God. And then lastly, I just, I just find we, we should just, I'm really drawn to this and, and I think we, we all do well to be drawn into verse 20 where Jesus redirects their attention and our attention to the gospel. In verse 20 of chapter 10, he says, However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, the the only comment the 72, 
if you if if you go with that route that it's saying 72 the only comment the 72 had as they come back is that lord even the demons submit to us in your name you know that they're excited they're like all of us you know we're we're like cats chasing around that jingly toy or that flashy piece of foil at the end of a string we're like a, a dog chasing around that laser that goes up the wall and and you've seen those videos or done that with your own pet you know I saw a nature program that showed these, this one kind of bird that gathers up as many colorful things into this sort of um, bachelor pad to try to draw the female. And um, except this bird they were showing, they were talking about how nature in cities, so this bird was in an urban environment, so it had collected all these pieces of garbage, you know, the most colorful pieces, but all this garbage was sprawled out. And then there was this sort of this shrine thing that the female would walk through, and it was, this, it was just garbage just laying out there. And what these birds will do is that sometimes a male, another male will come and pretend to be a female and then steal the most colorful piece of garbage and go over to his little bachelor pad and put it in his thing, you know. So, and I, I just feel like that in, in many ways we're, you know, spiritually, we know ourselves. We know that sometimes we find we're, we're just that simple, that we're just, we're, we're drawn to the, the glamorous, the flashy, you know, the, the, these things draw our attention. And even as a, the most spiritual and loving and devout person who has the best of intentions, it's going to find that your, your attention wavers and skips over to the flashy things that catch your ego's eye. And that seems to be what's going on with the 72 as they return and they, the demons, you wouldn't believe, oh, whoa. And all of us kind of get drawn into, you know, our side winning. That's kind of, I think, one of the feelings there of the 72 our hands being successful, our ideas being proved right. And Jesus lovingly sees us going after these day-to-day victories. And he senses the ego and the pride. And he says, you know, no, no, no. I mean, there's just really there's, there's one thing to draw your attention to here. Put your cares, put your mind, put your focus on the miraculous connection to God that you have. God knows your name. God knows your name. Don't, don't lose the point in all of the flashiness, the occasional flashiness that you have. You know, God is available to you, and one day, even though you might have tasted flashy glimpses of God's power or God's love in your life once in a while, one day at your death or when Jesus comes again, you'll look and you'll be looking eye to eye with this great one who knows your name who knows you intimately, who knows how you've lived, who knows what you've struggled with, who knows your wounds. Oh, he knows your wounds and your pain. He was there the whole time. Your tears, your messes, some that you created, some others brought into your life. He knows he's going to look at you. He's going to see through all that and just say your name to you in a way that no one's ever said your name to you before. That's, that's what you have. That's what these people have as they follow Jesus, C70. And there will be moments of power, but the journey that Jesus is on, that he has just turned, is on towards Jerusalem. Where that, 
where, where, where the hope for Jesus as he goes to all these towns on his way to Jerusalem is, is that then even through Jerusalem, through his suffering and death on the cross, that word would spread and expand and more and more names would be those that one day God will look eyeball to eyeball and voice in ways that we've been desperately seeking our entire lives. Let's pray. Our God of grace, this journey has happened and there's people, Jerusalem has happened and there's um, a giant tree of the Christian church through 2,000 years now and branches of that tree throughout the entire planet of people who catch occasional glimpses of your power and need to be reminded over and over of what is at the heart of this journey, our connection to you. And the dramatic way that that was definitively told to us through the cross and the empty tomb. So we ask that as we get a chance to approach the table of grace in a minute, and as we consider you offered for us, we pray that you would continue to work that grace powerfully into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.